Welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. I'm your host, Pyle Berry. With over a decade of a blended experience in clinical psychology and global leadership development, I've dedicated my career and life purpose to empower women to believe I deserve a seat at the table and it's about damn time. But how do you create synergy between who you are and how you lead? On this podcast, we address that inner critic holding you back, release narratives that no longer serve you, and explore how to use your leadership platform to make an impact around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Simply put, I cut out the bullshit. I'm here to share inspiration, practical tips, and have challenging conversations with other badass individuals who are shifting the narrative for all women. So let's stop apologizing for who we are and rise together as the unapologetic woman. This podcast is a Soul Fire production. This interview was recorded prior to the November elections. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. And I am so excited today because not only are we talking to one of the most badass women out there, but she is literally my mentor, my like the woman that I look up to, the woman who I think about as like, what would I do as my next step as an entrepreneur? She is incredible. Incredible, and I feel so honored and so excited to have Sandy Castral here, the president and the co-founder of Icy Stars. Thank you, Sandy, for coming on to The Unapologetic Woman. I, I can't even tell you how excited I am to have you. Well, thank you for having me, Pyle. I'm just, I, it's an honor. And, and, um, and your introduction made a warm, fuzzy place in my heart. So <laughs> thank you. I always love uh, talking to you, you know, over the past couple of years, I've become even more involved with Icy Stars, but I'd love you to take a moment to tell the audience, you know, what Icy Stars is and what it means to you. Sure. So Icy Stars is uh, a technology leadership and business training organization uh, for low-income young adults. And in a nutshell, we find talent, we train talent, and put talent to work in IT careers. But the secret of Icy Stars, what makes it so powerful is that we're teaching systems thinking and all of the beautiful process and methodology that's embedded in doing technology work reminds us that IT is about solving problems and building solutions. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, okay, what if we taught technology, got folks great jobs in IT, but then use that same blueprint for teaching community leadership. So in essence, mm -hmm. solving the problems and building the solutions that we see in our communities every day. And so the big aha was it's both technology <laughs> and leadership. And so, you know, what it means to me is we've been at this for over 20 years, yeah. which is crazy to say. I was five when I started. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're finally at the and, age where you can rent a car now at 25. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, I think that what it means to me is it's, it's funny being an entrepreneur, right? Like you really do give birth to something, a business. And in fact, you know, there was another co-founder, Leslie and I started this business together and then, then we went through a divorce, right? Like a split mm -hmm. up, right? Mm -hmm. She left in 2003. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so all of the things that kind of happen around the business, like all the things that we let in as entrepreneurs right. um, shape us for mm -hmm. good or bad or otherwise, they shape us. And that that's not even touching on the baby itself, right? So then, you know, IC Stars is a 20 year old organization. So mm -hmm. it's the 20 year old baby. Right. And that means that like, you know, you can leave town to go somewhere for a long weekend, but mm -hmm. you're still worried that, you know, there's gonna be a party and someone's gonna be smoking pot in the basement. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you're not there yeah. to join them. Yeah. <laughs> kidding. Um, no, I mean, that that's, you know, and it's such a powerful organization. I mean, again, having now gotten more and more involved, I've known you now for four years, but been even immersed into Icy Stars for the last year and a half. And it's been incredible. And what I find really fascinating and powerful about Icy Stars and when you're in the studio is that you touched on the fact that, you know, you're providing opportunities for people that are coming from underserved communities and giving them opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have in technology and leadership. But what you're also doing is empowering them and you're really helping them shift their perspective on how they see themselves in this world and what they can do. And I think that 
you really feel that in your first week in team week. And oh my gosh, the first time I had to sit through that, I was a hot mess. Like I was crying and bawling and it was just in it was a very emotionally overwhelming because you really do point out all the things that are going to matter to them as they get into corporate or if they go into building their own organization for themselves. And so the one thing that really uh, you focus on in Team Week as well and right in the beginning is that this is going to be more of a womanism approach. And I love that. I never hear that anywhere else. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. Wow. So yeah, you know, a womanist approach to things is is different than feminism, right? But it's it comes from the same roots. And basically it's it's kind of like feminism um, as seen by women of color. Feminism is seen by black women. And then we have a whole different set of things that we have to do um, in our families, in our communities. Um, that are a little bit different. And I think that when the feminist movements really kind of got its wings, there were many areas that Black women felt left out of or that mm -hmm. it didn't pertain to us. Um, and so, you know, fast forward to today, what does a womanist organization look like? Well, I, I would say that the, the biggest thing is that it focuses on growth versus winning. And, and that I think in particular, it's a very male perspective, like our president feels right now. We either win <laughs> or lose. Right. You're either a winner or a loser. Mm -hmm. It's binary. Right. It's very black and white. Yes. And when things are binary, when there's a right answer and a wrong answer, when they're, you know, we have to question the person who's, uh, who's framing the narrative for us. Right. Because nothing is really binary except technology. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it's right. You know? And so this notion of, and I think we see this in business all the time, is about winning, mm -hmm. you know, winning market share, winning over our competitors, winning the bid, winning the customer, winning, 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 winning. And that a womanist mindset would say, rather than winning, let's focus on growth. Yep. How do we grow as people, mm -hmm. as humans? How do we grow as a society to become more of ourselves? How do we grow as a planet mm -hmm. to learn how interdependent we all are? And so as you can see, that's a very different paradigm mm -hmm. from winning or losing and the whole sports um, analogy. So if you think about it, like sports to me are fascinating. Like I'm not yeah. a sporty person. I don't yeah. really watch <laughs> sports, but I really think that sports were, were kind of invented and perpetuated so that men could have a place to put their feelings, right? Because it's yeah. only in a, in a sporting game that they can jump up, they can right. scream, they can hug each other. And it's okay for them to cry. Yes. Yeah. And the devastation, all of those things yep. in one stadium. And that's why it's a gazillion dollar industry, right? It's therapeutic for them. Right? Yes. And that as women, you know, we may or may not have the same affinity to sports mm -hmm. um, because we have a different command of our emotions and feelings. Right. Um, and so what does that mean from a womanist perspective is that it's a place. We're holding space mm -hmm. for growth mm -hmm. and for emotional intelligence. I really, really love that. Understand our feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love that because, you know, when we talk about that and, and you're so right, especially I feel like in our community or society right now, it's either you belong to this or you belong to that. If you believe in voting for X, then you can, there's no way that you can also have feelings to, towards Y. And there's so much divide. You know, we look, see it in our politics right now. There's so much of that bipartisan. And, you know, uh, when we look at even what's going on with BLM and we look at what's going on with minorities, I feel like there's so much pitting against each other. And it's just that, you know, well, this community is benefiting in this way and I'm not. So I need to overcome them in order to create space for me. Instead of looking at it as like, we actually have a lot in common as minorities and we can actually support each other be, be such a united force if we saw each other more as let's look at beyond the layers of the fact that you are Hispanic or that you are Black or you are South Asian and look at like all these traits that we really blend in together of being part of a community, a collectivism type of approach, which is so right. big. And so, you know, when you talk about that growth and when you have that uh, in your 
organization, one of the things that I think is really powerful is having the kitchen man. And so <laughs> I, you know, I, I want you to talk about the kitchen man, because I think that that really speaks to the fact that when we approach things from a womanist perspective, when we look at things from a place of growth and what that means for a man to be a partner to a woman, and it's not to be that if you are pro-woman, you're anti-man again, because that becomes that black and white approach, but really looking at it as how are men partnering with women to be able to have them equal opportunities. Yeah. And, 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 and this is, well, what a great example you picked out. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's such an important one because right. It's, if you think about it, you know, it's one thing to be a minority, right? Mm -hmm. To be outside of the mainstream, to be outside of the perceived majority. And that what that does to us oftentimes, just as you just described, is we have to win over someone else. We have to push down another group to elevate ourselves. Right. And that womanist belief means just the opposite. You don't have to push down anyone. You uplift other people and then we all lift, right? Um, and so back to the kitchen, man, I always... You know, as an educator, I was like, I got to crack this nut. Like, <laughs> especially in the, in, the, in the communities that we come from, there's a certain degree of misogyny that is embedded in our culture that we co-sign on as women. We just do. Mm -hmm. um, because we love our men. We love, we love them. We want them to be successful. We want to give them, you know, right. we want them to grow, right? And, and the way to a man's heart is through their stomach, right? So there you go. You must be in the kitchen. You must be cooking. Right. We must be nourishing mm -hmm. our men mm -hmm. and taking care of them. And I, so I really struggled, like, how do I, in this context, teach womanism or feminism or any of those things? How do I create allies out of the men going through this program because um, we need them and that we're entering into a STEM field in IT that, you know, the intersectionality is, is like right in your face, mm -hmm. right? So one, you are a person of color, two, you are a woman, three, you are coming from a low income background. Like, so, so there's so much to kind of get right. through. And I really, really struggled with this. I, 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 talk to people. I talk to other women who are leaders. I, you know, but I couldn't really crack the nut. And then I came up with this notion of kitchen man. Yes. And the, the law is, at IC stars is that no woman can ever clean the kitchen. And it's funny to think about, right? Because we are like, Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. The men are going <laughs> to clean up and, you know, well, the funny thing but about even that, that is, is that why should that even be hysterical, right? Like why yeah, should that why, even be something exactly. that we even have a reaction to? And that, you know, you have equality when these kinds of ideas aren't so crazy and funny. Right. When it's just like, well, you know, obviously, normal. yeah. So no woman is allowed to clean the kitchen because what it means is that every minute that a woman at IC Stars is cleaning the kitchen, she is not learning, building, mm -hmm. doing, managing, leading, or making. Mm -hmm. And that we're pushing back the starting line for ourselves even further. So this is, is it's, it's kind of a unique perspective, right? Like, oh, okay, I got it. I got that, you know, but what does it mean in reality? It means that we have to fight against our nature to clean those dishes. Mm -hmm. Every woman at IC Stars does this, like whether you're in the program or you're a staff person or whatever, like it's hard not yeah. to pick something up and throw it in the garbage or wipe the table down. Mm -hmm. We look at every cup that we pull out of the cupboard to make sure it's clean, you know, because <laughs> we don't really trust that the men yes. are going to get clean. And so right. there's something on us, mm -hmm. right? Like, how do we manage through that to not just do it ourselves, but to also trust that someone else can take care of us? And that actually really speaks to the fact that, you know, when we look at companies, when we look at industries, you have a lot of women that are in there, but they tend to take up space as in the department. So they might be in HR, they might be in social work, but when you look at the top leaders, they all are celebrated men. So even with talking about kitchen man and the fact that a woman doesn't necessarily, you know, trust that a man is going to be able to clean properly and what that means for her is that there is this element that women are task doers and men are the delegators. And how do we shift that where a woman also, you know, stops to enable that behavior and takes accountability for the fact that it's okay for me to step away because I need to make room for me to grow. And this man is here to help me. Yes. And if you think about that, like 
that's really deep, a deep point that you made, you know, as women, we're really good at setting the table for other people to eat. Mm-hmm. And that we feed ourselves last, you know, even sometimes we're just standing over the, the burner with a spoon, you know, <laughs> well, everybody else is completely taken care of. And so what does it mean to, to feed ourselves properly, to nourish ourselves properly? What does that mean in our careers? Mm-hmm. What does that mean in our business? And, you know, I firmly believe that leadership is making opportunities for others. Mm-hmm. And it's really just that simple. But that too could be perceived as womanist, you know, like making opportunities for others. Leadership is winning and having people (laughs) follow you and getting the most of, you know, all of these things that we measure and that we value. And so it's not just a behavioral piece. Mm -hmm. It's about our values Mm -hmm. and not just as men or as women, but as a society, what is it that we value? Do we value a growth mindset? Mm -hmm. Do we value growth? communal growth or do we value winners and losers so how does that change when you know your interns are coming in these individuals are coming into the program they're being introduced to this womanist uh perspective this growth perspective they someone uh one of the men are assigned to be the kitchen man but all the men otherwise will support and help him as well now how does this over the course of the four months that they're with you in this cohort how does that change their perspective. So one of my favorite kitchen man situations was, you know, I I used to, when I was running the program, assign the guy with the most machismo to be (laughs) the kitchen man. Love it. And so I'm walking behind two guys. They don't know I'm behind them. You know, they were walking down the hall and the the guy who was just assigned kitchen man was so angry, Mm. so mad. And he's like, this is effed up. How (laughs) dare she tell me I'm going to do this. This is demasculating. Like, you know, he had all of these things and so much rage. Right. And, and then I quietly, you know, was behind him and I said, I'm really glad to hear you say that. And then both guys were like, it's all over, you know? And, and I said, because now we can sit down and have a conversation because frankly, if it's so horrible and humiliating to clean up after women, who's cleaning up after you? And what does that really mean? And they were both just like, Mike dropped. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like I not, you know, hadn't really thought about it because the people who are cleaning up after you, obviously you love and love you. Right, right. And so are you every day humiliating them and shaming them and doing the things that you felt were done to you? So there's that. That was big. And then, you know, we pull everybody together to talk about it. And, they're, you know, initially people are like, well, then the girls should take out the garbage. And then people <laughs> like, there's all that, like our need for things to be fair. Right. Right. But we can't have things fair if we don't have equality. And if we don't have any equity, right? Like the, mm-hmm. all that is there. So anyway, you know, the person gets assigned and there's a little song that yes. goes with the, the kitchen man. And this song is sung when the kitchen is dirty. Yes. And the song is sung when the kitchen is clean. Yes. And everybody sings the song. Like, you know, staff will hear it and they'll come in and sing it. <laughs> the people in the studio will sing. Everybody will sing the song. Um, and it goes like this. Yes. I love the song. Kitchen man cleans the kitchen, and the kitchen is so clean. Kitchen man cleans the kitchen, cleanest kitchen ever seen. (laughs) Oh, kitchen man, oh, kitchen man, how we love, how we love our kitchen man. Love it. And it's great. It's really great fun. But if, if you take a step back and think about what it's saying, mm-hmm. is it's first, it's affirming good behavior. Mm-hmm. Kitchen man cleans the kitchen and the kitchen is so clean. So there's a moment of like, we see you. Right. And we're affirming this, even though the kitchen is a disaster. Mm-hmm. We're, we, what we see is that kitchen being clean. Right. So get to it. And then it changes to, you know, old kitchen man, the person responsible for this. Right. There's an adulation with it. Yes. And how we love. Mm -hmm. We love our kitchen man. Right. And so now as a man, and this song gets into your head, it gets into your bones. Oh yeah. It sounds kind of like a Disney song, to be honest. <laughs> like it's just like <laughs> I I just imagine it in like, you know, Beauty and the Beast where like Belle's walking and everyone's behind her when she's going to the library and oh, 
<laughs> like multiple harmonies. Definitely. So that when this notion of advocacy is always with you, mm-hmm. so that is, is, as the guys then go back home, so think about Mr. Machismo again. Mm-hmm. And the next time he's going to be crappy to whoever it is is cleaning up for him, he hears the theme song. Right. How we love, how we love our kitchen man. And how is he then expressing love right. for the person who's cleaning up for him? And if he doesn't in that moment grab a plate and start washing, mm-hmm. then we haven't done our job of making yeah. and creating and developing um, people who are making opportunities for others and people who are advocates. Because yeah. if we're just out for ourselves as minorities, like I got to get mine, right. I'll worry about everybody else. Mm-hmm. We're never growing. And I would argue that we're not even winning. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so powerful. And I mean, I love, I love it. I know whenever I've been in the studio, I've definitely had to, you know, struggle from like, let me just go ahead and put this glass in the in the dishwasher. Let me just clean it, whatever. And it just, it's hard because you just think like, well, it's not necessarily even about that. It's just that I'm just so used to doing it. I'm just, you know, it'll take me a minute, but you're right. Like that one minute is costing me a conversation I could have had or a connection that I could have made. I love that. And I, I definitely see the transformation and I see how everyone starts getting encouraged behind it. And you even see how the girls in the cohort start to get more empowered and to feel more that, yes, it's, I'm okay that I can go ahead and start working on my project. And I'm not going to worry about that because it's not my responsibility right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing that you do through Icy Stars that I think is so powerful is that you have them start thinking about their legacy immediately. And I think that, you know, when women and women of color or just people in color in general are thinking about work and what they're trying to do, we're coming from sometimes a place of scarcity because it's that focus of, I need to just do, I need to get up there, I need to climb the ladder, whatever it's going to take. And you're so, focused on the granular, that you're not looking at the bigger picture always and seeing that how is every step that I'm making right now intentional towards the legacy that I'm going to leave. And you really emphasize that throughout the entire program to the point that it's actually part of their scorecard for them to actually pass the program, that they need to create some kind of a, 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 a legacy for even the cohort. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why the legacy is so critical for each one of these individuals that are coming through and how do you see them as they're getting into organizations and working, really still propelling that same mindset? These are such good questions by Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so legacy is, is really the statement of change and it's how have we changed our lives and the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times we confuse legacy, like we could just as easily ask the question, um, you know, what do you, what, what do you want your legacy to be? We could ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? But the difference between those two questions is huge. Because if I say to, you know, a fifth grader uh, growing up in a rough neighborhood, what do you want to be when you grow up? That has immediately created a chasm between the two of us. Because that child is looking at me and saying, you stupid lady, do you realize that I might not ever grow up? Right. And that I am living day to day. Yep. And that you are, you have so much privilege that you're able to think about what do you want to be in this, you know, like this fantasy almost. Right. But if you ask the same child, what do you want your legacy to be? What is a legacy? What are you going to leave behind? What do you want to be remembered for? Right. They will have like this glorious answer, right? Like, and it involves such rich imagination mm-hmm. and that it's the essence of who they are is basically what they're about to tell you. Yeah. And if we can just be reminded of who we are in connection to who we help, who we heal, mm-hmm. who we make things for, what opportunities we make for others, then, you know, that's what life is all about, right? Yeah. And it does the job of shifting us from that very short-term thinking of, I'm just mm-hmm. trying to get through the day, mm-hmm. to really being about how do we plant the seeds now right. for that legacy? And that's really powerful stuff. Now, how does it unfold in our work life? How does it unfold in our future? It takes us from that scarcity and short-term mentality mm-hmm. to a long view and it impacts everything that we do. So if you think about just savings, 
Right. Right. Like, how am I going to save money? I can't even, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like to think about how we're saving and investing money is a privilege because it, it implies a long-term thinking and it changes everything. If we're going to think about how we pass down generational wealth, We have to be thinking long game versus short game. We have to change that scarcity mentality that's just day by day, Mm -hmm. a cash-based mentality Mm -hmm. to really being one about investing. And how then are we investing in others? Because that's what the legacy is. Yeah. I love that. That's one thing to amass all this wealth, but yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so powerful. And even when you compare the, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up and what do you want to, what is your legacy going to be? Immediately, I started thinking about that. And when I'm thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up, I'm like, ah, I don't know. Like I'm still growing up, you know, and it kind of leaves you fixed in this place of just, again, thinking from a singular perspective of I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about what do I want to be? Versus when you're thinking about legacy, immediately it releases this emotion. It releases this like, you know, bigger than life, like hope for yourself and for the people around you. And a lot of times, you know, when you're talking about that community and how do you want to heal and give something that, you know, we learned really quickly early on in in, uh, when I was a clinical therapist was that you can a lot of times identify what the person, what the therapist or what the psychologist is healing based off of the work that they're doing. And Mm. so when you think about when someone talks about their legacy and what it is that they want to create around them, it's a mirror into really learning about who they are and what has been their moments of challenges, their triggers, and Mm. how they are either healing with it or have already, you know, found their awareness around it and now are ready to give back. But I think that legacy point is so important because it really allows people to connect in relationships. And, you know, when we think about uh, leadership and we think about what you were saying is that instead of it from being from a winning perspective, it's from this growth perspective and community perspective, being a leader is about having relationships. It's about knowing who your audience is. And I think what you said touches to even, you know, the scarcity and everything touches to entrepreneurs. When women of color who are, which I couldn't believe when I read the statistics, but it's 2% of women entrepreneurs actually even make it to the six-figure salary or the six-figure profit amount. And it's... 2%, you know, it's so low. And so there is that mindset of like, how do I even get myself to a place where then I can give back because I'm just day by day trying to survive and create my business. And 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 there's so much alignment with that. Yes. Yes. And, and to be an entrepreneur, you literally have to, Yeah, you have to move out of being a doer Mm -hmm. or an individual contributor Mm -hmm. to thinking about how is my business going to impact others? Yeah. Because if you don't have any customers who want to come back, you don't have a business. Right. And the same thing holds true for um, programmers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, basically it's about your end user. Who's going to use the system that you're building. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're not making an opportunity for them to do something better, faster, stronger, funner, Mm -hmm. right. You are losing your customer. And, And so we have to get into that mindset to be entrepreneurs, to be makers, to be programmers. And I want to take that moment now to really ask you, and I think that your story is amazing and phenomenal because, you know, you didn't, you started off as an educator, but you were also in performing arts. And, you know, a lot of times when, again, women who are coming into the place of entrepreneurship, it's not a straight line path. You know, there's a lot of hopping around and through that hopping around, they may start creating some self-doubt about themselves of like, am I good enough to do this business? Like, should I have jumped into this? Do I just get a nine to five job and forget about this? There's so many things that go through your mind because you're learning as you're stepping into that place. And a lot of times, you know, these are people that are coming from families that don't own businesses. They don't have that same privilege or resources. I want you to share a little bit about your story because I think it's amazing to see how you've connected all these different talents of yours into creating this immersive, engaging, stimulating experience for your, uh, for, for everyone who comes to Rice Stars. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, you, you know, I, so I, I studied theater in college, um, Mm -hmm. and I was a performing arts kid. You know, I, I went to performing arts high school. I, you know, did plays when I was little. The first 
play I was ever in was Winnie the Pooh, and I was Pooh. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. <laughs> and you could still see Pooh in me, like uh-huh. today. You know? Yes. Um, <laughs> a friend once said that everyone uh, links up to a character in Winnie the oh. Pooh. Um, I love Tigger and Piglet, and I don't know what that says about me, but I just, I just love both of them so much. It means that you're an excellent friend and you love adventure. Ah, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, like theater saved my life. Like as a kid, like that was it. I had a place to go, a place where I felt powerful. Um, Mm -hmm. And that one of the first things you learn in theater is that it's really not about you at all. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about being authentic. So it's not like you're putting on something, you're becoming a character. You're actually becoming more of yourself by being authentic and real. And you have to tap into your real feelings Mm -hmm. and so I think that that has been with me my entire life like just to be authentic and then to connect with people in a very authentic way Mm -hmm. and that once you stop doing it or you get in your head or you're like all thinky 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 and you're not there you're not present Mm -hmm. and everything kind of falls apart so as a teacher that is absolutely true right like if you have an authentic connection with your students yeah you can teach anything Right. But once you get all heady and dowdy and worried and that, you know, that voice, it, the next thing you know, the kids are like, you know, making fart sounds and throwing chalk. Oh, right? kids like can smell over. it. Kids can smell the fear of teachers so well. I will be honest. I remember in our AP US history class, um, there was a new teacher who was coming in and he left after two days because he just couldn't handle and it was, it was 11th grade, you know, and of course not, we're not necessarily nice in 11th grade. And so two days later, he quit being a teacher. Just be, he just couldn't handle the actual experience and being in there. Yes. Two in his it, head. It's not for the faint of heart, really. Yeah. But also it's the, it, that authenticity thing, like, because we get so scared, like the, the scariest human beings on the planet are teenagers. Right. You know, they're scary in every dimension. They're scary. They're scary because <laughs> they're mean. They're scary because they're like, bodies are changing. They're right. scary they're like, you know, all of, all of those things. And so you have to, you have to meet them where they are and bring out the individual to, to then meet whatever it is that you're selling, mm. uh, which is knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, with, with U.S. history, it was probably the top, the subject that was the hardest for me as a kid growing up. I oh, really? hated it. I just hated it. Oh, I just God. felt like it was like a bunch of dates that were disconnected to the real stories and that we learned history from war to war to war. That's so true. Who the victors are, right? Yeah. Like, it's always a story that was told through the eyes of the winner. Yes, Exactly. And so, you know, I'd always think like, well, what if, what if we learned from peace to peace, mm. like who the peacekeepers were, mm-hmm. what the times in our history, his story mm-hmm. of peace, mm-hmm. how would that be different? How would it be different if we took a growth mindset versus a winning mindset? Right. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I actually failed U.S. history um, <gasps> because I couldn't stand it. I, I failed yeah. it, and, you know. And so, of course, in I believe sort of the uh, the reciprocity of education means that every lesson we teach is one we need to learn. Well, I would then have to be a teacher of of civics and U.S. history. And so, I would start my class on the first day. I would get everybody like meet them at the door and mm-hmm. say, "All right, we're going on the Mayflower. Bring all your things." And like <laughs> we we were out getting on the boat, and I'd sway as I taught and. And, and then we'd have a conversation about, all right, so when we get to the new world, mm-hmm. what do you want to do? So, you know, again, like open it up, big question. What do you want to do? Like, you could do anything. This is uncharted, right? Right. And then it would be like, well, I'm going to open up a bar. You know, I'm like, oh, <laughs> sorry, but we're Puritans. <laughs> um, and oh, so, don't believe, and, and then I would be the one who's kind of like putting mm-hmm. the constraints on that. Mm-hmm. So that now we're really getting an understanding of what the new world is going to be like, mm-hmm. but we still haven't even arrived. Right. And so it would take me like a week to keep swaying. And so people were finally anticipating, oh, are we there yet? Like, yeah. How long did it take them to get across the ocean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting all of those nuances in to the fact, to, to finally being like, here we are mm-hmm. in the new world as Puritans, mm-hmm. because we fundamentally believe that we want religious freedom. Mm-hmm. We 
wanted to be as Christian as possible. Right. And we want to break the hierarchy of you have to be what your parents were so that you right. can be anything you want to be. Mm-hmm. And boy, what a beautiful, beautiful paradigm to teach anything from, like pure freedom to be right. what empty canvas. Yep. And how powerful our spiritual um, freedom is, mm-hmm. our religious freedom. So then, boom, you can teach the Constitution. Boom, the Bill of Rights. <laughs> boom, the Declaration of Independence. Like, it's all there. Like, of course, we're going to write this document. That King George is a tyrant. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> so <laughs> I clearly, I, I love teaching and mm-hmm. I just, you know, was in my happy place. And it took all that theater to be able to get there. Right. And I was also consulting for other teachers and school corporations and really training teachers who are new mm-hmm. or working with teachers who are stuck, who are really like your guy who lasted two days. Yeah. Um, I would have worked with someone like Poor that. Poor guy. Like, get back in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I had a really interesting view of education because I was able to see kids in rural, suburban, Mm -hmm. urban people, kids who had a lot of resources and kids Mm -hmm. who had very little. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really struck me was that the kids who had the least had the most resilience. Right. So they had developed this toolkit. There's reciprocity, there's critical thinking, creativity, Mm -hmm. chutzpah, like all Mm -hmm. the things that we get from facing adversity. Right. Resilience doesn't go through comfort. You know, when you're comfortable, you're not going to have that same level of, you know, like you think about that, you know, princess who's stuck in the forest and there's animals around her. Is she really going to be able to fend for herself or is it going to be the one who's actually learned to hustle, who's learned to, you know, navigate the pathway? So when we even think about it from a perspective of like, you know, individuals have gone through Ivy League schools and we look at individuals that have not and they are just street smart and they're working their way through it. And that shift of that perspective of thinking that, you know, well, I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so I'm not going to have the same opportunities. It's like, well, actually, you've got a lot that someone who, yes, of course, the Ivy League schools are going to open a lot of doors, but the character, the traits that you need to set up a successful business to set yourself up as a leader, those comes from facing adversity. Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. And and so now, to your point, the narrative mm-hmm. is that these kids can't learn. They're not ready for school. They're not, they can't, you know, do right. higher math. They can't, you know, all of the things that can't mm-hmm. happen when, in fact, my hypothesis was just the opposite, yeah. that they could do very complex math um, mm-hmm. because they do very complex math every day to actually get to school. Mm-hmm. So you're facing unwanted variables, you're facing constraints, you're facing all kinds of things. Understanding algebra is nothing, right? right. Like, boy, we do that in our sleep. What's really interesting is to think about it from, a, 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 from the perspective of calculus. Oh gosh, I couldn't even get there. That was not my jam. <laughs> well, <laughs> because it's multidimensional, mm-hmm, right? It's mm-hmm. almost spiritual in that we yeah. have to believe in things that we can't see. Mm-hmm. In that it's not about the outcome, it's mm-hmm. about the process. Right. And how we fold in multiple dimensions. And that, that being the math that people like, you know, like you just said, we're afraid of the most is actually the juiciest, most fun math there is. Mm-hmm. And that if we don't have access to that math, we will not be the ones who write the rules for our society. Right. We'll be constantly just the doers and sitting under the winning team and the victors team trying to figure out how do we get there. Yeah. Exactly. It's those resources. Yep. So, so yeah, that was my jam. And I, you know, and then I, I'm happy doing this. I'm teaching. I'm math and science teacher. I love it. I love my work. I love my kids. I really believe that teachers should never buy their own lunch. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, let me just say this. <laughs> There's a teacher in your life that really impacted you and uh, you should buy them lunch. I love it. And tell them what you're up to. Because they want to know. They'd love to hear. And, you know, to your earlier point that when a teacher can make a really good connection with their students, it leaves an impact on them. And every student, every single person always remembers that one or two teachers, they know their name, they know everything, and they'll either keep in touch with them forever or they will randomly send them an email. But I know that it, it really makes a difference in how you then think about yourself in the future. Yes, absolutely. And, and frankly, 
it's such a wonderful thing for that teacher mm -hmm. to know that all the seeds that they planted years ago have right. sprouted yeah. and it will impact them in the classroom that they're in today. Mm -hmm. because there will be another pile just sitting there <laughs> in the second row, like I am ready to learn. Right. And that definitely reminding, like, making those connections says, Oh my gosh, I see you. I see you. Right. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, founding IC stars sort of came out of that world. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the late nineties and <laughs> technology was everywhere. It was super cool. There were 25 year old, uh, founders. It mm -hmm. was, uh, it was a shortage of technology workers because everybody needed a website. Um, it was, it was a crazy time. And, you know, we thought, my goodness, teaching, it, it, teaching technology, getting people like the barriers are down. We can mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 boy wouldn't it be cool if and, and 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 wouldn't can't you see the social justice in it from shifting that we were all consumers to now being makers right and that technology affords us the opportunity to do that we're making the apps the systems mm -hmm. that people will use and that we that can never be taken from us yeah. Moreover, it's a technology is an area where you're constantly learning and it's always changing, right? So which then again speaks to the growth and growing attitude. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And 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 so right, like if we're if we're always learning constantly and and managing, directing, implementing change, we're change agents. Mm -hmm. But if we use that same format, that same structure to solve problems in our communities, we're agents of change. Right. And that what's central here is this notion of change. Whether we're changing our life, whether we're changing the life of others, whether mm -hmm. we're changing an industry, the world, whatever, mm -hmm. we're standing right at the center of change, you yeah. know? And that, that is a very powerful place to be. It's not happening to us, we are making it happen. We're cultivating it. And I think that, you know, one of the things, I mean, there's so many, like in all of these discussions that we've just had, like there's so many metaphors in there for, you know, women entrepreneurs who are, who are, you know, just really thinking about like how you're seeing yourself, how you're seeing yourself in the industry you're trying to make an impact in, how the community you're trying to make an impact in, the way that you're shifting your mind perspective. You shared a story one about how after your co-founder uh, left Icy Stars, and it was you and you were there with your board and you're having a discussion on who's going to be the president. And that was a really powerful story because I feel like it really speaks to, again, that shifting of that perspective and that mind for every woman who is an owner of what she's created and to be able to be there in front of, you know, a board of all men to speak up for herself. And I'd love for you to share that story about what that meant for you and how you were able to speak up for yourself to say that I'm going to be the president of my own company. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a doozy. Okay, so <laughs> it started off, I was um, bringing all the interns to a, a networking event at the Sears Tower. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we're like doing our thing and, and I'm kind of watching them, making sure everybody's good and the introverts are taken care of. And, <laughs> you know, a woman walked up to me and said, so, so how do you like the program? Right. So she made two important assumptions. One is that because I was a woman of color, I had to be in icy stars. Mm -hmm. And two, uh, that I was in fact, an intern uh, mm -hmm. at icy stars, which I thought was a great compliment. Like a, <laughs> it meant that I was young and smart enough. Of course, because you were, you were only five at that point. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so um, I said, well, actually, you know, I, I like it very much. I'm actually the co-founder of Icy Stars. She said, well, can I talk to you in the hall for a minute? And I was like, yeah, you know, I looked, made sure everybody was okay. Mm -hmm. I went out into the hall and she proceeded to cuss me out. Like cuss me out. Like I haven't had a cuss out like that since I was in high school. Like cuss me out. Like my mama didn't even cuss me out like that. Like it was <laughs> wow. It, it, like my face was hot. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, you, and you stop hearing what somebody's saying. You just right. are just like, what's happening? Right? Yeah, like, it's a shock. Like, 
flight, you're in shock, you're, right. I'm like getting all like that tingly feeling in my head. And I'm starting to think, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to like fight this woman in the right. Sears Tower? And then what's going to happen? Like, am I going to come back and like have a black eye and be like, come on, I'm really, let's go. Like, I don't, I like, what am I going to do? Oh my gosh, right. what am I going to do? Do I take off my earrings? Like, what? <laughs> let's then, go. <laughs> and then I, tuned in for a second to what it was that she was actually saying behind the bleep, bleep, right? Like, what was it? And, and when I tuned in, this is what I heard. Mm-hmm. How dare you be invisible? How dare you? How dare you be invisible for all the people like us in the community who thought that the only way an Icy Stars could get started was by a white lady with expensive shoes? how dare you how dare you be invisible for all of the students that you have and will have who think that the only way a black woman can can be in an organization is to be behind the scenes right how dare you how dare you be invisible Mm -hmm. and there was a whole lot more in there but you know it was like (laughs) (laughs) so I, I just said, thank you. Mm. Thank you. And that was a hard truth to hear, but it was so right on time. Mm-hmm. Because a few months later, the other co-founder would leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sitting in the board meeting and everybody is, is, is talking about, oh, we need to do a national search for the new you know, president of the organization, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, we'll use this search firm. And they're actually making their plan for right. this search project. And I was like, what? The, you know what is it why right. how why are you talking like this why are they wait you know and and like i'm i'm, I'm do getting they see that you like yes i and i don't know whether to like you know if i to yell or to cry like my tears are gonna fly out not just like you know and i am freaking out and in my mind i was like why why can't you see me and in fact i had become invisible and i was so upset that i kind of like ran out of the room because i didn't want them to see me upset and one of our board members uh, followed me, tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, baby girl, now you go back in there and you get your job, right? Love it. And he, you know, it's, and and and, and I did, I like went back in there and I kind of like got myself together and said, I'm the president of IC Stars. And I don't think we need to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Oh, mic drop right there. I love that. <laughs> love that. And, and what I think is so important and cool in the story is that after I claimed it, and after I stood in that, stood in my power and my truth, their response was, oh yeah, of course you are. Okay, next order of business. Let's look at that. Like, it was nothing. Right. In my mind, it was everything, right? But and what was that like then for you? Like, after they said, okay, yeah, that of course you are. What was that feeling that you had for yourself that after... You know, you got that little nudge from the other board member who came chasing after you. But when you had that nudge and you were able to shift that for yourself, that I'm going to claim this, how did that then change the trajectory of how you communicated and spoke with the board members and with everybody else around you? Well, it's it's like the moral of the story, you know, it mm-hmm. was about being visible and stepping into that light. Yeah. And not waiting for other people to give you your power, right. but to actually take it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I spoke with much more authority. I think that I, I had earned it. You know what I mean? It didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened because I was visible, intentionally mm-hmm. visible. And so I think, you know, kind of it's the theme of, of all the stories that we've been talking about today yeah. and about like, you know, stepping into our power and being visible, even when we think it's not necessary. Everyone really is. And I think that, you know, and I know I can attest to this a lot of times where I just think that, well, you know, are they really going to pay attention to this? Do I really, and you make up all these justifications to not put yourself out there because it may be scary and, you know, to really own it. And what if they then dismiss you? Because that happens a lot with women of color is that they dismiss your accomplishments because it's, you know, it's not good enough. And then they put that in your head. So then you continuously think that, am I good enough to claim this? And when you're building a business and it's yours, it's your baby, it's your passion, you know, and kind of circling back to what we started with is that, you know, just like a marriage and going through a divorce, it's that this child comes out of it and you still have to nurture it and you still have to be there. And Till the last breath that you take, you're always going to think about it because it's something that you created out of nothing. And so I, you know, you, with tying this whole conversation into 
being visible and your personal journey of becoming the president of Icy Stars and owning it and claiming it. You know, I think again about the unapologetic woman and the woman of color who is stepping into that place of not no longer being a solopreneur, but really is starting to build that team, starting to build where her baby is no longer in the hands of herself, but it's also now in the hands of all these other people and hoping that they're going to align that for them. You know, I have two questions left for you. So one question is that who would you say that when you think about an unapologetic leader, an unapologetic woman, women that have been mentors for you and inspiration for you, how would you characterize them? Oh, how do you characterize a badass, right? <laughs> like the, someone who's not afraid to speak up when they're in a space where they are other. So, you know, whether that's a, a boardroom full of men or it is, you know, um, people of a different race, a different religion, a different, whatever that is, you are other. For that, not to diminish you, but to empower you. Mm-hmm. And I think that the best mentors I've ever had and the most badass women that I can think of are all able to do that. So things that were meant to disable us, to diminish us, to silence us, they use as fuel to shine even brighter. I love that. That's beautiful. And I want to know for everybody else out here is that what is the best way for them to connect with you? Oh my gosh, please connect with us. Connect with IC Stars. Our website is IC, like, you know, the letters, stars.org. Um, you can find us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, um, and all the social. Um, and really, uh, we want you to connect. Connect with us. Come and have high tea. Um, and come to one of our quarterly events. Engage, plug in, and you'll be glad you did. Thank you, Sandy, so much for being on The Unapologetic Woman. You know, for me, when I think about The Unapologetic Woman, I think about, similar to what you said, is someone who can really take a stand when others won't and when she can speak for herself, but also when she can so easily share her vulnerable story so that it can be something that other women that may be going through something that they can relate to experience as well. And you're an incredible storyteller. You're an incredible force to be reckoned with. And I just feel so blessed to have you in my orbit and to have you in my energy field. And I just, you know, I consider you my mentor and you are my unapologetic woman that I think of when I think about how do I want to lead and how do I want to create an impact and what's my legacy going to be. So thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your wisdom and spreading your truth. I'm sure everyone's going to like really, really benefit from hearing you speak today. Oh, thank you, Payal. And thank you for having this series. You have no idea how many people you're going to impact and influence with it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Unapologetic Woman. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe so you'll get real-time updates when I post a new episode. And if you really believe that others should be hearing this, then leave a rating or review this episode so others can find it too. And if there's something you'd really love for me to cover or highlight, then head over to my Instagram account at Pileberry. DM me to let me know. I'm all ears. If you want free resources, practical tips, and inspirational stories that I share with my clients, visit pileberry.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You'll get them all. Until then, take a moment to celebrate your journey, reflect, and be ready to embrace your next epiphany.